0: Summer, 1990 A teenage boy in trouble An evil that only comes out at night Only a straight-to-VHS movie can save him From A. Kale, the author of Beware the Night Bad Dreams A thrilling horror novel now available on Amazon Rated PG-13 for some thematic elements and mild violence. You are listening to The Dark Fantastic Podcast. Welcome to this new episode of The Dark Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, A.K., And this is another pocket edition of the podcast, which means that this is a shorter episode, but it has all the things you've come to love about the podcast. So let's begin. What makes a movie a classic? Is it the theme, the script, the directing, the acting? Some movies are called classics just because they have been around for decades and have gained enough cultural cachet for them to be deemed classics by influential critics or writers or opinion leaders. But the more I delve into this topic, the more I discover how tenuous the term classic really is. Take Citizen Kane, for example. Um, It is considered by almost every movie buff and every respected film critic the greatest movie ever made. But I've never really met anyone who actually enjoyed watching Citizen Kane. Uh, Personally, the first time I watched it, I think was almost 20 years ago or 15 years ago, um, a friend of mine told me that he he had a copy of it, a VHS copy of it, and he considered it uh, the greatest movie ever made, and I asked him why he, he had that opinion, and I think he told me that that's what, Everyone said about Citizen Kane or that some professor uh, told him about it, you know, in in a film class. So I borrowed the the VHS copy of Citizen Kane and watched it. And of course, at the time, I wasn't really as versed as I am now in in, in film history and film studies. And... uh, but I had I had made uh, a couple of short films uh, at the time, so I knew a little bit about filmmaking, and I had I had read uh, some books about about film, and of course I had come across pieces written about Citizen Kane and several books about film history and film studies. But the first time I watched Citizen Kane, I felt that it wasn't really very entertaining to watch and as as i watched more movies uh, later on and uh, and delved deeper into into film history and, and and what cinema really is about i discovered personally that the greater the movie is the easier it is not not easier maybe maybe this is not the best way to put it but i discovered that great movies for the most part w- maybe with with a few exceptions from the silent film era or films that go on for too long like you know over 3 hours but most g- movies that are considered great That I liked, are enjoyable. Some of them are even fun to watch. But Citizen Kane never really, you know, moved me in any way. Uh, The more I watched it, and the more I studied it, I understood why what people were saying. uh, People who understood film and were interested in film history, of course, that technically it was groundbreaking in many ways w- with orson wells of course ever the illusionist and ever the cinema magician using every movie trick available to him at the time to make citizen kane and on on that level of course it's uh, it's uh, it's groundbreaking and he he pioneered a lot of not really te- techniques but he 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 pioneered the use of these techniques uh, in a way that maybe hadn't been used like that before. But as a piece of storytelling, Citizen Kane is just arguably far from flawless. The acting, you know, uh, across, you know, the whole movie from... From all you know, from most of the cast, is just so melodramatic. And Orson Welles was was such a humorless uh, actor, and uh, and he was of course a very egotistical filmmaker and a very egotistical person. And that came across, you know, on the screen. And uh, his performance is just just boring to be honest and the film itself is so heavy-handed in in many many places I think the movie is considered a classic and is so revered more for its political posturing and technical razzle dazzle than than for any real storytelling merit as is the case with most of of, of the films of orson wells uh, also a touch of evil a film that's considered also one of the greatest films ever made and again technically it's uh, there are th- some things in that movie that are just great but again a touch a touch of evil isn't that great in terms of performances and storytelling and all of of wells's projects are just so bloated and so heavy-handed, so again, it circles back to what I was saying uh, about the idea of what makes a movie uh, a classic. I think that movies age in different ways and the more a movie follows a theme considered hot or topical, at the time it was made, the more that movie is bound to age quicker than other movies that that don't really pay attention to the cultural moods of the time. Um, Consider most of the films made in the late 1960s and throughout the 70s, Films like Dog Day Afternoon, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, The Conversation, and The Parallax View. These movies were considered explosive at the time for their counter-cultural stance and more or less in-your-face politics and, and, and approach. But most of these films really haven't aged well, coming off as emotionally overheated and intellectually not very impressive, to be honest. Critic uh, Leonard Moulton described Dog Day Afternoon as a movie that is basically much ado about nothing. And in many ways he's right take away the great performances and rousing street scenes featuring al pacino you know roiling up the the crowds and and you get an overlong and somewhat you know story that goes nowhere and aside from chris sarandon's character uh, a very sympathetic character and his his performance in that movie was great But aside from that character, the main characters in the movie are just not very likable. But there are movies from that era, the 1960s and the 1970s, that have aged very well. Uh, Movies like uh, 1972's The Candidate, starring Robert Redford, one of my all-time favorite filmmakers... The Candidate is as timely as ever and remains one of the most intelligent movies ever made about politics and political corruption. And of course, The Godfather, also from 1972, seems to get better with age, I think. Another example are the films of John Carpenter, a brilliant technician and uh, a royally subversive filmmaker. Many of his themes of, you know, corrupt churches and corrupt clergymen, and uh, a um, a topic he's really, you know, obsessed with, Uh, greed nihilism and anti-heroes they are o- they are all themes that still resonate to this day for better or for worse but as he himself has admitted on many occasions his lack of interest in in costume design and and several you know de- details of of uh, of design and and art direction. The, this l- lack of interest in these details makes his movies age much more than they should considering Carpenter's neoclassical visual style and mastery of, of the technical aspects of, filmmakers, of filmmaking and of course his storytelling talent as well uh, because Carpenter's movies, for the most part, with the exception of Maybe They Live, which is way over the top, and the tone of that movie is just way off, uh, and it's, uh, I think, Carpenter's most self-indulgent movie. But apart from They Live, and maybe Prince of Darkness, to some extent, and In the Mouth of Madness also, Apart from these these movies, Carpenter has always been uh, a very efficient storyteller. But again, because of his lack of interest in in, in the deta- in the details of design, uh, the, the 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 hairstyles in his movies, uh, and, and you know some of the, of the, of the of the costumes and. Uh, In in his movies, uh, especially in the movies made in in the 70s, you know, with the bell bottoms and and, and stuff like that, they make the movies age much more than they should uh, because the visuals don't really age. The filmmaking, for the most part, in in, in most of of Carpenter's movies, doesn't age. Sam Raimi, uh, on the other hand, who's also a brilliant uh, technician, and who kept growing as a filmmaker because uh, he started as w- w- with the Evil Dead movies and maybe uh, even up to his movie uh, The Gift. Uh, he started as, you know, a, a razzle-dazzle kind of filmmaker like Orson Welles. Uh, he wasn't really a very good storyteller. Uh, his movies were, were on the chilly side and you couldn't really relate to his characters. But just his, his technique and his, his filmmaking style, they were just amazing and, and they never age. But also, because uh, Raimi has said uh, on several occasions that he actually pays attention to the, the, you know how, how his, his actors dress and to costume design. Because he, uh, he, I think he said it in the in the Evil Dead companion, which is a great book. He said that nothing is funnier than watching a movie and, you know, you know, seeing the the the, the outdated you know hairstyles and bell-bottom trousers and you know, uh, things that were considered stylish at the time the movies were made. So he always paid attention to make his characters dress in a way that was as timeless as possible. And you can see it in his movies, even dating back to The Evil Dead, even though some of, of the technical aspects, especially the, the, the effects of a movie like The Evil Dead, have have aged. But really the way his, his characters dress, for the most part, is, uh, is timeless, you know, we, we know with uh, the with, uh, plaid shirts and, you know, jeans and, uh, and things like that. So, again, I think that contributes to what makes a movie, you know, age fairly well. And, of course, all of that wouldn't count if, if, the, if, the, if, if other aspects uh, of the filmmaking wor- weren't good, but to make a classic i think or a movie that is timeless i think filmmakers really have to watch these these elements other movies age because simply their ideas or approach were dated from the get-go like most of the action movies from the 1980s for example If you watch them now, with the exception of maybe uh, many of the movies of uh, Sylvester Stallone and some of the movies of Steven Seagal, most action movies made in the 80s, if you watch them now, they are just either silly or over the top or their ideas are just, you know... Some of them some of their ideas are even repulsive now. But I think what makes movies like Hitchcock's Vertigo, The Archers, The Red Shoes and The Haunting uh, Directed by Robert Wise, what makes these movies so timeless, what makes these movies classics is that they were well written dealt with timeless issues and, of course, their makers knew their crafts inside out. I recently came upon an article in Slate magazine called Why Has the Second Coming of David E. Kelly Been Such a Quiet One? In the article, the writer claims that though Kelly has made a comeback after being in semi-retirement for nearly a decade, his return to the small screen has been a quiet, somewhat unimpressive one. Personally, I beg to differ. As the creator of such hits in the 1990s and the 2000s as The Practice, Ali McBeal, Picket Fences, Boston Public and Boston Legal, David E. Kelly was one of the most successful TV showrunners in history and deservedly so because Kelly basically revolutionized the TV legal drama with the practice, which during most of its run was one of the best written and most entertaining TV shows to ever air on American television. If you watch the practice, really, there was nothing like it, with the exception of the groundbreaking Canadian TV show Street Legal, which... uh, I think, premiered in 1987. And then, of course, there was LA Law that that came after it. But what Kelly did with the practice was, was basically take the legal drama, you know, and which up to that point, again, with the exception of street legal and LA Law, up to that point, the legal drama was either, you know, overly moralistic, or, uh, you know, adhered to a certain fo- formula. And the characters in these dramas just weren't realistic. With the practice, Kelly did something very, very, you know, unique and, and groundbreaking in its way, is that he took the legal drama... Added an element of moral ambiguity to it, um, made the characters realistic in many ways, but also made it very, 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 very watchable, even to people who didn't really like legal dramas. He took the legal drama and and made it something that that was viable for primetime television, something that could be so entertaining, so thought-provoking, and in some ways, you know, sensational, uh, because, uh, of course, he, he did, he he, oh, he David E. Kelly always had the tendency to just go over the top every once in a while, but with the practice, he just made legal dramas very smart, very realistic, very gritty without making them off-putting. They always had this, you know, sheen to them that didn't really take away from from the realistic aspects of the drama and the psychology of the characters, but he, his shows are, are always, you know, they, they always just shy away from being too off-putting or too, you know, repulsive. Uh, because other dramas like maybe Homicide and NYPD Blue which which were also great shows in their own way they just sometimes they pushed it too hard they pushed the, grit, the grittiness too hard that maybe they turned off some viewers David E. Kelly never really did that although he dealt with some really controversial and some really dark topics uh, across all of his shows, he always had this unique ability to present them in a way that made them accessible to most viewers. And again, going back to the uh, to the idea of uh, David E. Kelly's comeback, the success of the practice really turned Kelly from a success, successful showrunner into a brand name, you know, producing one show after another with varying degrees of success. But for the most part, uh, his signature style of wit, dark humor, and humanity made his shows so stylish, so groundbreaking, so singular. Uh, And he just, you know, made so many shows at the time... Ali McBeal again and the practice, and Boston Public and Boston Legal, of course. But after the cancellation of Boston Legal, which was an uneven spin off from the practice, and uh, in some ways it surpassed the, the practice, but in many ways, Boston Legal also showcased some of the of the worst tendencies of David E. Kelly, and that, again, he sometimes uh, went too far in terms of sentimentality and in terms of, you know, soap, boxing, and preaching. But anyway, after the cancellation of Boston Legal, Kelly seemed to slow down, you know, producing... Um, another show very similar to Boston Legal in many ways uh, called Harry's Law, starring Kathy Bates. And he made a couple of shows after that, like The Crazy Ones with uh, Robin Williams and Sarah Michelle Geller. But none of the shows that he made after Boston Legal really you know, had his, his touch and he seemed not really interested in them. So he slowed down and he basically retired from show business after uh, Boston Legal and disappeared from the scene for several years. That is, till he had a massive hit in 2017 with HBO's Big Little Lies, a great show, especially in his first season. And uh, it was based on a popular novel and it was just a huge hit critically and commercially. But that was considered his his comeback. But in the strangely passive-aggressive slant article that, uh, that I mentioned, the writer of the article seems to argue that Kelly's output since his comeback with Big Little Lies has been mostly underwhelming. Again, I disagree because as a fan of Kelly's work, especially his legal dramas and many of his shows, including Picket Fences, I can honestly say that that assessment that that shows that Kelly has made since his comeback aren't up to par, that assessment isn't entirely true, because, for example, Kelly followed Big Little Lies with a show called Mr. Mercedes, and uh, I think it, it uh, premiered on direct TV. I think um, Mr. Mercedes uh, was an adaptation of one of Stephen King's worst novels, but under Kelly's supervision, it became one of the best TV shows of 2017, taking King's lame plot and extremely unlikable and unrealistic characters and turning them into a moody, haunting and brilliantly plotted series that played out like, you know, a a long-form movie and was just amazing. Uh, I think the first season of Mr. Mercedes is just so underrated. And even if, if Kelly's voice wasn't as pronounced as in his shows from the 1990s, Mr. Mercedes still had this quirky, unique quality that only Kelly could deliver. And Mr. Mercedes lasted for three seasons. Season 1 was just a masterpiece. Season 2 was very uneven. Uh, Season 3, again, was was very good. And... uh, After that, he made, uh, of course, Big Little Lies season two, which was also uh, a good show. Maybe not as good as the first season, but still, the writing had some really bright spots. And yes, he made The Undoing uh, last year for HBO, uh, a show again, which was based on a popular uh, book, And a show that really began well but it completely self-destructed you know, by the end of its run. But overall I think that to say that Kelly's output since his comeback isn't up to par, isn't fair because at the moment Kelly is involved with more than 10 shows including The Big Sky which is a a very big hit on network television, and uh, he has, of course, uh, his adaptation of Nine Perfect Strangers, and a lot of shows, uh, you know, on, on basically all the networks and all the streaming platforms, and I, for one, am so pleased that Kelly is back, because no one writes like Kelly, and I always look forward to watching any of his shows, even if if that show didn't really turn out to be his best. His shows are always interesting and he is a brilliant writer. I'd like to end this episode with a short clip from the opening track of Craig Saffin's soundtrack to Lon Chaney's The Phantom of the Opera which is out now. It is a great soundtrack and is a must for fans of the classic movie and fans of gothic cinema. So please... Uh, listen to that clip and again thanks for listening and please join me again on the dark fantastic podcast You've been listening to The Dark Fantastic Podcast.